let us comment, let us explain from a yogic way those truths, those things which are being presented in a religious way in the Bible. Of course, that is a huge task in itself because uh, the Bible in itself is a bit long. I mean, I'm talking the New Testament, the things about the life of Jesus, the deeds, the teachings of Jesus. So let's see how far we manage to reach. That can be a very, very long project, all in all. But um, we are starting it tonight. I don't know if we are going to do it every single time we have our evening meetings. Perhaps we'll choose to do it only every second evening meeting, so there should be time for other questions. It's also because uh, some of you who are more beginners, those who have just come now from the first month and so on, are perhaps not very familiar with this level of talks and with these issues. Because many things in spirituality converge and they express some common truths and therefore in the things which were being exposed by Buddha or by Jesus or by the great enlightened beings, then you can of course find some fundamental truths which correspond precisely to yoga. And before we start this, therefore, I would like to make a consecration, especially with a view to this purpose, for this series of lectures. Uh, again, I have never held a series of lectures on such a long subject, and therefore uh, we are going to read in time, I don't know how many hundreds of pages of things, and with comments and so on, this can stretch over years, as somebody was uh, jokingly implying and uh, yes it can let's see how long this cycle of lectures will be and slowly slowly we'll see if we can what kind of knowledge we can accumulate first i will start with the consecration for this endeavor which is unique in the perspective of yoga and which is explaining a lot of the laws of the universe through a yogic perspective and after that, I'll start making some introductory comments. Let us start with the consecration.
start. First of all, it is necessary to explain, especially for those of you who don't have enough background in spirituality, what is all this story, because this indeed may look, may make some things of yoga look a bit sect-like, that we are doing yoga and all those things, and here we are talking about things from the New Testament, from the Gospels, from the Bible. Of course, on one hand, uh, we must understand that some truths are universal in the meaning that the great spirits of this planet, they have expressed a universal truth, one and the same truth, under various forms. And that is why there must exist a red thread between what Jesus has said and what Milarepa has said, and what Buddha has said, and what Rumi has said, and so on. Because when you speak about the Absolute, when you speak about the One, when you speak about the ultimate essence of the universe, automatically it's like everything is converging to one single reality. That is why we can say that wisdom has no denomination, that wisdom is one, that ultimately the structure of reality is one, and therefore all those who have tried to speak about that, they have been speaking about the same thing. The truths of the universe are unitary. Therefore, obviously, we can find the universal truths in the sayings of Jesus, who is one of the persons on this planet who is most credited with a fabulous wisdom, who is one of the persons on this planet who is credited with uh, a supreme divine realization. That means if you would imply that on this planet, in all the known history of mankind, there have been only five beings who have reached enlightenment in the last 6,000 years of known history, you would still definitely say that one of those five lucky ones in that time must have been Jesus. By whichever calculation, a personality like that of Jesus comes in the top of the tops of every tops of spirituality and therefore automatically if we ascribe such a value and we realize, okay, this person is bringing us a divine message, is bringing us a divine truth, this is the kind of person who is in a samadhi with the eyes open and talks directly from the universal consciousness, then automatically the message brought by such a person 
is very significant. It is very full of truth. It is loaded with the essence of existence, with the essence of the meaning of life. That is why it is of course normal to look at the message of one like Jesus, as Jesus being one of the most proeminent exponents of divinity, of the infinite, of the absolute, of the human enlightenment, of the human realization, of the human perfection. And uh, actually, as an illustration of that, we can say that the yogis of India have been very, very much in love with Jesus. Also, perhaps, because Jesus is presenting this path of the heart, because Jesus is kind of the arch exponent of the path of heart, the path of love, the path of devotion. And then automatically the Indian yogis, especially who are so much into bhakti and into things of the heart, they always felt a spontaneous resonance with a message like that of Jesus, because Jesus is like talking their language. For example, the Tibetan yogis, although they agreed on the fact that the person of Jesus is a divine being, is an ultimate being, they did not resonate so directly, because perhaps they were more Manipuristic, their message was a more tough type of practice and other things, and uh, therefore perhaps they didn't find Jesus so close to their heart as uh, the Indian yogis did. One can also speculate, and the life of Jesus gives the room to such speculation, that perhaps Jesus himself shaped himself, formed some of his philosophical ideas, the language, the concepts, some of the force lines of the truths which he wanted to say. Maybe Jesus, I say, some people would claim, shaped those ideas in the Indian environment, perhaps in his youth having traveled to India, and being inspired by the Indian spirit, by the Hindu mysticism, by the message of the Buddha, which was still in full power in those days. And therefore many people can say that there is a consanguinity, a kind of a relationship in both ways between Jesus as being such a beautiful example of the heart, which the yogis would love spontaneously so much, or at the same time Jesus presenting a message which is very much the message of uh, forgiveness, of compassion, of kindness, the message of the heart, the message of selflessness, the other beautiful aspects of devotion and surrender. Therefore, surely there are some common lines there and I'll try to unveil them. And that is why, at least from the standpoint of the yogis of India, Either we are talking about Shivananda, or we are talking about Yogananda, or we are talking about other great yogis, Ramakrishna as well as Mahatma Gandhi, to go into different ends of the range of yoga. We still find that all of them had a special feeling for Jesus, had a special love for Jesus. All of them felt Jesus more like than everybody else. Uh, Yogananda in his own memoirs, in his own uh, uh, autobiography and others claims uh, special contact, a special inspiration with Jesus and if you want to take it to the extreme 
the divine madman that was Ramakrishna, a person of such a practice and a person at the same time of such a purity, such an inspiration, such uncompromising spirituality, a person like Ramakrishna, who is himself supposed to be an avatara, a divine being, witnesses, he simply declares about his experiences with various divine aspects, like what happened to him when he meditated with Shiva, what happened to him when he had the vision of Kali, what happened to him when he had the vision of Rama or the vision of Krishna or others and others. And funny enough, a man like Ramakrishna, he claims no more and no less that while having bathed in the vision of Rama and in the vision of I don't know whom and so on, at the same time he finds obvious that the highest divine vision that he had is actually the vision of Jesus. Ramakrishna uncompromisingly decides or declares that the vision of Jesus which he had through his yogic samyama, through his own bhakti, through his own identification, is actually the highest of all of them. When a man like Ramakrishna, who is a Hindu, gives such a, uh, offers such a guarantee, gives such a statement to one like Jesus, then automatically you have to think that Ramakrishna doesn't have any interest to declare anything in favor of Jesus, that actually if he does it, indeed it is the result of his experience. To put things into perspective for those of you who are more beginners and you haven't heard me saying that, because it's not, it's not the first time I'm saying that, I have to say that the yogis of India, first of all, consider Jesus, the man Jesus, as a kind of the perfect human being, as a kind of the perfect exponent of humanity, a kind of archetypal human being taken to perfection, and they consider Jesus like a kind of a perfect yogi. There wouldn't be any decent spiritual yogi of India who would not consider ultimately that the best way to live your life would be to do what Jesus did. That means every yogi, every enlightened, every yogi of India who would realize what life is, would uh, say that if I would like to be like someone, I would like to be like Krishna, and I would like to be like Rama, and I would like to be like Shankaracharya, and I would like to be like Abhinava Gupta, but definitely I would also like to be like Jesus. It's like Jesus is an arch model. That is why many people consider Jesus, they call Jesus the divine model, our divine model. It's kind of archetypal humanity. If you could do that, if you could live like that, then you would be perfect. Then there would be nothing else to add to your life or to your being. If you could have that kind of divine presence, if you could be with God all the time, and have the perception of the divine all the time, if you could walk on water and raise the dead, if you could uh, be in such a presence of the divine that healing and miracles could flow through you at such an intensity, then there would be nothing more that you would be able to ask from this universe or from life. That would be simply everything pushed to, per to perfection. It's basically like you cannot conceive of a life which would reach more than that. Like, if you would want to push it more than Jesus' life, 
where would you push it? What would you do? It's kind of, that is the complete life from the standpoint of everything, realization in every conceivable manner. And that is why uh, many, for many yogis, Jesus is simply a model. They simply say it's like that perfect model that we are all yearning to reach. Either I am Ramakrishna or I am Yogananda or whoever I am, I would like to become like Jesus. I would like to be Jesus. It is the message brought also in the Western literature by a Catholic mystic, Thomas Akempis, who even wrote a book on that subject, which is one of the classics in Roman Catholic Church, which is called Imitation of Jesus Christ, Imitatio de Jesus de Jesu Christo. Uh, it is a book in which simply the purpose of it is trying to imitate Jesus. It's like a kind of a practical method, non-yogic, of kind of how to do samyama with Jesus, how to imitate Jesus in all respects, in eating, in walking, in talking, in being, in whatever. Therefore, for many yogis, first of all, Jesus is a kind of a perfect archetypal human being that we would all like to be, that we could push our life to that extreme level, to that extreme momentum of spirituality. In India, however, there are opinions on the human life which make that uh, although the various human beings may be equal to each other in the meaning that to the ignorant view Tom, Dick and Harry they just look like three different human beings and they are more or less the same human beings are definitely not the same from the standpoint of the quality of their soul their spiritual evolution their background and other things we can conceive easily of a human being who now is first time incarnated after in the last life, in the previous life, having been a monkey or an animal, and that human being will have a special primitive psychological emotional structure. We can talk about a human being which is now first incarnated as a human being and maybe in their previous form of manifestation they have been a fairy or some other type of elemental entity floating through the subtle worlds and therefore this human being will have a very special kind of anahata chakra and a very special kind of frequency in their aura and in their psychology. We can speak about a human being whose life has taken them through a lot of stories like this or through a lot of stories like this like if in your previous life you have been Alexander the Great that definitely can be seen in this life on your chakras and on the way your spirit is shaped and in that way they, in yoga we would admit that people can have a very different background from each other and they can be shaped in various various ways and also they would admit that if an animal can suddenly become incarnated as a human being and if a fairy or some elemental spirit can become incarnated as a human being, they would also admit that in special circumstances superhuman entities such as the Dakinis of Tibet or the Devas of India, they can be incarnated in a human body and they will be some very spiritual, very refined, very powerful, very exceptional human beings because actually the body is that of a human being but the spirit is that of a deva 
and at the same time ultimately on this ladder of possibilities of what a human being can be ultimately is the one which the Hindus call the avatara the avatara literally meaning a descent and it means actually nothing else but a descent of the divine consciousness under one of its various forms in a human body that means yes you can have one of the ruling consciousnesses of the universe such as one of the ten great cosmic powers or Lord Vishnu the preserver of the universe or whatever for a special historical moment take shape like project in a human body be born yes like a child and live an apparent human life and exist on this planet as a human being while actually the spirit present in that body is definitely not the spirit of a Tom, Dick and Harry who is just uh, promenading through their daily evolution but we are talking about a very very high exalted cosmic level spirit which for a purpose that purpose usually being changing history uh, helping the history of this planet operating a major change in on this planet that basically you can conceive that such a spirit can at times be incarnated on earth in the Bhagavad Gita Lord Krishna being considered himself one of the ten great incarnations of India or immemorial times actually this mysterious Krishna who is considered himself an avatara one of the ten avatars of Vishnu is uh, claiming very clearly that in times of history when the Dharma is going low, where the religious spirit is going low and the demonic tendencies are becoming rampant and the spirituality is about to get lost I am being born again and again on earth like he says it in other words like I'm coming down to give an impulse to spirituality I'm coming down to show again a model to inspire human beings to give courage to their hearts and to show that I exist, that the spirit exists and therefore see I'm here with you you can now even see me physically take heart and stand up realize that you can do these things and basically this idea of avatara is that in moments where the human history requires it the divine consciousness or some divine beings they can make a great act of sacrifice and come into this very limited form in under a human form in human history trying to kickstart humanity again trying to give it a boost trying to give it a model some of this uh, for example in India Lord Vishnu himself one of the three deities of Hinduism uh, the preserver of the universe is supposed to have had or to have ten such incarnations nine of them have happened already and uh, one of them is yet to come that being the famous Kalki Avatara the last which the Hindus are still expecting uh, out of this for example Krishna was only the eighth Avatara of Vishnu and uh, for example the famous Rama from Ramayana Lord Rama he was the seventh incarnation of Vishnu so for example for Orthodox Hindus in India Rama and Krishna are just the same person 
they are both of them Vishnu but one of them incarnated 6,000 years ago and one of them incarnated 4,000 years ago in two critical moments of history when that place, India, needed them. And therefore, it's kind of these incarnations may happen, therefore, at various times. And basically, again, while Rama and Krishna are two historical, totally different characters with two different lives and with two different activities, Actually, the Hindus consider that Rama and Krishna are just one. That is why you can even find names such as Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna is kind of, that's why you put them together. You don't have a name which is called Rama Buddha, because there isn't Rama and Buddha are not at all the same thing. But Rama and Krishna would be the incarnation of the same spirit. That's the Hindu theory of Avatara, which says in moments of distress, or in moments when the Divine Consciousness considers it necessary, suddenly, not only that people from Shambhala can come and be incarnated, but at the same time, not, not only that very high spirits, enlightened beings can come and be incarnated, but even directly aspects of divinity, aspects of the Divine Consciousness can directly come on earth. Obviously, an avatar is not a person with a past and with a future. You cannot talk about the previous lives of Krishna because there isn't such a thing. It's like you try, try to talk about the previous lives of Vishnu and that's kind of a subject way beyond the human mind. And therefore, these beings which are called the avatars, which are very rare in human history, we are talking about beings who have no karma, beings who have no past, beings who have no future. It is a complete absurdity to ask yourself when did Krishna become enlightened, because Krishna was enlightened to start with. Either he remembered it as a child or not, that's superfluous. The final fact is that somehow Krishna, either when he was 14 or when he was 16 or when he was 24 or when he was 34 for the case, he, by some meditation, by something, he simply broke the veils of his physical body and re-realized what he always knew, that he was an enlightened being, that he was a divine consciousness descended on this planet with a mission, with a purpose, to do something, to change something, to contribute, and then just to take his leave again and to disappear from this place. Therefore, uh, you cannot judge an avatar by this, like what will happen with you in the next life, or will you go to heaven, or will you go to hell, or will you have a good karma, or will you have a bad karma, because avatars are not at all conditioned by this. Avatars are more or less the finger of God poked into this world, fiddling with the game playing with its own, with his own cosmic game and therefore avatars live by completely different rules. An avatar can basically do whatsoever, an avatar theoretically can do even things which are discussable or arguable, like for example Krishna just did. Krishna did a lot of things which according to common standards, yama and niyama, would be arguable and yet nobody thinks ever about judging Krishna because Krishna cannot be judged by the standards of Tom, Dick and Harry because he is no Tom, Dick and Harry. He is no more and no less than Vishnu, the preserver of the universe. You cannot judge Vishnu, the preserver of the universe 
for anything which is common to the human mind because nothing of those apply to that. In the same way, Jesus himself is considered one of the great avatars. Many people would say perhaps the last avatara. There are two cases in later history where people were considered avatars, but they are considered more or less what we call minor avatars. After the time of Jesus, the great Abhinavagupta in the 10th century was considered by all the Shaiva schools of India as being the one and only ever until now incarnation of Shiva on earth, actually. And that is unique. And Abhinavagupta was indeed an exceptional, exceptional, completely, completely transcendent type of human spiritual spirit. And at the same time, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa in the 19th century seems to have declared himself in his own words in the last minute of his life that actually what everybody didn't know, hadn't known about him was that actually he had been an avatar. He declared in the end of his life showing to his body just a few minutes before he passed away. He said in this body Rama and Krishna are united as one but not in the Vedantic meaning of the term which uh, in the Vedantic meaning we are all Rama and Krishna because of Atman. Atman is making us one with the ocean. So in the Vedantic meaning if I can say Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman, I am the Absolute, then of course I can say I am Rama, I am Shiva, I am Vishnu. I can say that and it's totally true in a Vedantic way that is as a meditation identification. But Ramakrishna said, in me, Rama and Krishna are one, not in the Vedantic way, which means in actual fact. That sentence has only one interpretation, and when it comes from such a gigantic spiritual person as Ramakrishna, has to be taken very seriously. Basically, Ramakrishna seemed to imply that he was the ninth incarnation of Vishnu, and many people in India believe that. Alternatively, some schools of Hinduism believe that Buddha was the ninth incarnation of Vishnu on our planet after Krishna and some believe actually that Jesus was the last, the ninth incarnation of Vishnu on our planet. In this way the Hindus immediately adopted Jesus and they said yes we know we had the seventh and the eighth and the Jews had the ninth. You know it's kind of these incarnations come everywhere on the earth and they held and so on and they simply immediately accepted that Actually, the greatest yogis, the analysts of uh, this, they came and said, wait a second, uh, Jesus, if indeed his words are true, is not just an incarnation of Vishnu, that being a very paradoxical way, because you cannot say not just an incarnation of Vishnu, that means something anyhow of ultimate level, but the G uh, Jesus presented himself as no more and no less than an incarnation of the Divine Father itself. That means a direct incarnation of the ultimate God, a kind of direct central descent, not like Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva aspect, but directly as an incarnation of the central ultimate aspect, which makes Jesus completely unique in the history of the world, because there is never nobody anywhere in the spiritual history of the world which has come to that and therefore in the case of a person like Jesus you cannot conceive of a person like Jesus telling lies in this respect definitely 
because a person like Jesus is way beyond that and you cannot conceive of somebody at that level using a lie about this and therefore automatically we are bound to admit that if what Jesus says is right it has to be taken all, it's a package deal and you cannot just take his message and say oh this guy was 99% right but this part sounds a bit odd therefore in Hindu understanding Jesus is an avatara therefore he is not a spirit which comes from somewhere and goes somewhere he is divine spirit incarnated for a divine mission he changed the history of the world radically and remember nobody on this planet shaped this planet as much as this man called Jesus did in three years and a half that means the public activity of Jesus is approximately three weeks three years and six months in three years and six months this man has changed the history as nobody ever did in such a short time and even today two thousand years after we still talk about Jesus and he is still controversial for some and he is still an arch spiritual model for some others and therefore that is indeed not a human power that's where you can see that things are superhuman because no human being has ever been able to shake the whole planet in three years and a half of activity. Shankaracharya did a lot, but Shankaracharya didn't, as an example, comparatively, and Shankaracharya died young, but still Shankaracharya acted for 14 or 16 years before he passed away, and others and others. Swami Vivekananda of India did a lot for the Indians, and he was supposed to be the incarnation of a high spirit coming from one of the Sapta Rishis and so on and still he acted for a number of 10-15 years and so on in three years and a half it's kind of completely flabbergasting that a man can act without media, television, press or anything an, an isolated individual in some place in the desert of Palestine and Judea can act for three years and a half and shape the world perpetually it's kind of living something unforgettable to the whole world that is why indeed the yogis of India have agreed this Jesus is no common mortal we are talking about divine spirit we are talking about an avatara surely the Hindus not being completely uniformous in their views some of them still argue today whose avatara was actually Jesus who was behind Jesus but if you are to believe Jesus himself what he had to say about he himself and his mission where when he declared himself the son of God the ultimate the son of the ultimate basically he declares himself as being one with the ultimate God he unequivocally says it as you will see I and my father are one that means I am God basically he says plainly I am God when he says that and that statement is kind of incredible it makes Jesus the greatest, ultimate, and unsurpassable avatar in the history of mankind because there cannot be something higher than that. Nothing can surpass that level. And that makes Jesus double as much as an example because indeed that would be perfection. To have the archetype of the divine consciousness and at the same time to have somebody who is the archetypal member of this humanity is like to have as a model the perfect human being, the divine human being. That is why the yogis have been so much in love with Jesus 
and realizing that this Jesus is not like Shivananda and like Yogananda and like Buddha. He is not a mortal who has been climbing his way along the ladder of evolution, but is a spirit descended from above, and in this case the very divine spirit, the very ultimate, the very ultimate spirit of God descended in a human form, then automatically this has endless consequences, it has endless metaphysical consequences, as you will see, because you can simply say that this means a recognition of the human condition. If God has deigned to take a human body, that sanctifies the human body through this, because you can say, I am not alone. Once upon a time, even God, the Lord of the universe, took the shape of a human body and walked the surface of the earth and had a bladder and fist through it and did all the things of daily life. Therefore, this human body with its legs and its bladder and its hair and its lips and its whatever is sacred because it has been inhabited by the divine consciousness which is beyond time and space. For the divine consciousness there is no time, past, present or future or they are surpassed and therefore <coughs> in this way if we admit that the divine consciousness experimentally or compassionately assumed the human shape for 34 years on the planet earth then automatically we assume that there is a divine infusion in the human race in our bodies in our matter exactly through that it's kind of the ultimate blessing that I am approaching that I am borrowing your existential condition that I am becoming you that is why the condition of Jesus is unique his message is unique and that is also why perhaps among all the great avatars of history Krishna gives us wonderful teachings such as Karma Yoga in Bhagavad Gita other ah, great spirits of mankind such as Rumi and Milarepa and maybe small avatars like Ramakrishna and Abhinavagupta and others they give us wonderful teachings and wisdom about life but presumably nobody is closer to our heart and nobody is giving us the real exact archetypal teaching than the path which Jesus recommends that is why the path of Jesus this complete surrender this faith this divine existence is indeed ideal and those who have tried to experience it they have noticed that indeed there is something totally divine in that way it is for this reason that Jesus holds a place of pride. Jesus holds a very privileged place in the hearts of spiritual people who understand finally that this was not a human being. It doesn't really matter that this person was tall or short, that he was born in Israel or in India, that he was in this place or that. Because yes, of course, there are many historical circumstances which make that he was what he was and he came when he came because he was needed right there and right then. But nevertheless, here we are not talking about a person who is the product of humanity. We are talking on the contrary about something which helps humanity, which is like the finger of God poked into humanity for bringing something amazing that the human beings also misunderstood this and made a salad of it and in the name of religion a lot of crazy things have been done this is not happening only about Jesus and only in Christianity this has happened always about everybody 
Milarepa had some, said something or Buddha said something and people made a salad of it uh, and uh, they forgot about all its things other and other great masters Krishna and others they said divine things and people made a salad out of it and they made institutions and religions and whatever the prophet Muhammad said wise things and he had the vision of God and also in his name people did all kind of crazy things that is why it is unfortunately not the guilt of one like Jesus that he is coming with an archetypal truth and introducing it to mankind and that mankind does not understand it or that mankind misinterprets it. But it is important for you as yogis and as aspiring to a state of spirituality to understand that the position of Jesus is kind of out of the category. Jesus is simply one of a kind. You cannot compare in the light of yoga Jesus with Buddha. Or I often say in the courses casually, uh, this is what Buddha said and Jesus said and so on. Yet in conceptual terms, Jesus is something entirely different from what Buddha has been because he represents the divine being in action among humanity. That is why the message of Jesus is so uncompromising and so spiritually sharp it is true that we seldom have access to the original sayings of Jesus. <clears throat> there are many historical controversies even about people who lived a thousand years ago or five hundred years ago. Therefore about Jesus even more so. Uh, the sayings of Jesus have been commented, recommented, interpreted, reinterpreted. Sometimes they have been slightly adjusted, censored by the church and so on there is a great controversy of how much from the Bibles of today are actually the words of Jesus. Even if it's 50% left of it, and still they have the flavor of a message, the essence of the message has been preserved because they, you might clip a little bit of something because you don't want to come out that Jesus spoke about reincarnation or he did this or that but clipping those corners it will not change the core of the message which is always the same and clear that is why don't worry even when the message of jesus can be considered truncated it is not truncated beyond spirituality i would like to share with you because some people by their background somehow they get to be completely anti-christian uh, both because they don't understand Jesus himself and they have a kind of allergy to everything which is pro-Christian. Actually those people have an allergy to the institution because sometimes the Christian church as an institution uh, has manifested and can be a very obnoxious instrument in the society and do all kind of crazy, stupid, pathetic, ugly things and so on. That again doesn't change anything in the message of Jesus. And many people then would believe they would uh, kind of, they feel grudge that the church, in spite of them being such assholes, they actually represent this most enlightened being, this divine spirit. It's kind of, it's, I'm pissed off at you that you read some books which speak about uh, Jesus that is our heart and our ideal. And therefore, many people then try to have a kind of a fake rebellion a kind of absurd revolt by uh, trying to put the church down completely and saying well this Bible and all these things are completely zero you have censored them you have altered them you have whatever and therefore they are not good 
Jesus is something else. You don't represent Jesus at all. While it is possible that some Christian institutions of today are so pathetic that definitely they don't represent Jesus at all, remember that these texts, which are the Bible, the New Testament in particular, they are not so adulterated because the people who changed, who decided the version of the Bible, the first version of the Bible, first was the first Christian council in Nicaea or whatever, I forgot the place. The first council of the church, there have been six such major councils in history, the last one in the year 800 and something. The first council of the church where all the bishops and archbishops and the great dignitaries of the church gathered together and they took common decisions was actually held under the direction of the Emperor Constantine and his mother and that event was attended by at least ten enlightened beings ten of the major calendar saints of Christianity such as Saint Basil the Great, Saint Gregory the Theologian, Saint Anthony the Great and a few others whose name is uh, eluding me right now they have been in the council, they have been in the, uh, how to say, in the, on the, on the postament there, they have been ruling this council. When Saint Basil the Great decided this thing is definitely not from the Bible, because in that time they didn't have printing press and everybody had manuscripts, and there were a lot of freaks, like today's New Age freaks, who were channeling things and they were just writing things pretending that that is the words of Jesus and so on there was actually in that time already existing a lot of pseudo-Christian literature a lot of crap written by all kinds of hysteric Tom Dicks and Harrys who claimed that those were li real letters of the Apostle Paul or Peter real uh, gospels real uh, uh, things and they were not they were just hysteric literature lit written by crazy people as it happens today in the new age and then these great saints of Christianity Basil and Gregory and others they had to make order in this because if they wouldn't make order in this the Bible would be populated endlessly by all kind of crap added to it and moreover it would become bigger and bigger every year with additions from every Tom, Dick and Harry who hysterically will claim that he had a vision, he channelized it or whatever. And therefore they simply had to cut to what was known for sure. And you can be sure that a man like Basil the Great who was walking on water and rising the dead from their tombs, he definitely did not dare in his spirit to alter what he, honest to God, believed that they were the words of Jesus. People like Basil the Great and Gregory the Theologian and others like them, August, Augustine and others, these were God-fearing people who were very, very, very moral and ethical, who were kind of perfectionistically moral and ethical, who were complete, complete fanatics in the, their understanding of God, and these people deliberately, if they would have believed that this is the word of Jesus, they would have rather cut off their right hand rather than to change that word. Either they understood it or not, these people religiously would have kept any word from Jesus because they were completely, completely devoted to that. That is why actually the Bible was not changed uh, so much as some criticists of the Christian church try to say today. 
because indeed it was changed in the meaning that it was cleansed of a lot of trash which was starting to add on to it but it was cleansed by some people especially in the first council who did the major revision of the Bible who were gigantic spirits and who were very very holy and very very enlightened human beings and therefore remember that this fear that the Bible is very adulterated is non-founded and there is an ultimate confirmation to that in the 1940s or 50s some peasants in Palestine they discovered the famous so-called Dead Sea Scrolls and among the Dead Sea Scrolls they found the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas the famous Gospel of Thomas and when you read it if you put it parallel to these ones there are just some five or six differences which are not not major basically what the Gospel of Thomas says is what the Gospel of Luke says and what the Gospel of Matthew says just perhaps formulated in a slightly different way in the 1970s in Egypt in a small place called Nag Hammadi they discovered the famous Nag Hammadi library which contained again a, a lore of Gnostic literature and yes a few lost gospels such as the gospel of Mary Magdalene and the gospel of Peter and when you put them again together near John's gospel from the official Bible and the others you don't find anything else it never says there that Jesus was doing some outrageous, completely different things. And then you'll find out that in this Bible, they actually censored it grossly. That would have been indeed a complete smashing down to find some Gospels where the history was described like radically different. And then you would have been able to point the finger to the church people and say, thieves, crooks, you know, you have really adulterated it. But it isn't the case. The case is that even the Gospel Gospels, which come from the first century AD and we have never been censored by any church authority, they basically tell us the same story with the basic keynotes and the same. That is why I'm telling you again, to an extent of 95%, the Bible is actually not adjusted. It is not doctored very much. It is, I have the feeling, and I'll tell you when, I have the feeling, I have the feeling that there are a few statements here and there where simply they doctored it because the theology of that would have been very, very difficult. It would have been like changing the whole background to be able to explain those facts. And then they are better kind of left silent. They are better left untold to spare people from speculating foolishly. In that way, actually when we believe the Bible, which was, again I'm saying, this Bible was a sanction by, by all the great spirits of history. Try to remember that if St. Teresa of Avila and St. Francis of Assisi and others and others, they had divine visions and they performed miracles and they healed the lepers and whatever else they did, those people, if they would have felt that the divine truth is another thing than this, they would have immediately stood up and said so because they are people of great spirituality who would risk their life any time for the spiritual truths. And the fact that they didn't do it, and generation after generations of bona fide mystics and saints and seers, they have said, this is right, it's the way we feel it, and this is the message. It actually shows that the fears that the Bible has been altered radically are not founded on truth. The Bible apparently has been doctored a little bit just to make it more palatable and so on. But 95% of its message 
is still there and that is why we can easily comment on it, follow on it, on what Jesus had to say. Well, that was the introduction which I wanted to do. That is, those are the parameters within, within which we go. And now we are going to, by looking in the Gospels and this, we are trying to try to see who Jesus is, what did he do, what did he say, what did he preach, what are the events which accompanied his short activity, what happened after he finished his activity, and in that way to actually explicitate some of the major things of spirituality seen through the eyes of Jesus and through the eyes of those who followed him. Be basically what I'm going to do is that I'm going to start reading from the Gospels. There are four Gospels and if you want mathematically I can tell you that the four Gospels take in this little booklet here no more and no less than how many pages? 196 pages. That means it's like 200 pages in a booklet like this. I don't know how long time it will take us, because of course at places I will need to stop and to make copious commentaries, laborious commentaries to explain that. As somebody has said was joking, perhaps that will take several years and we'll kind of do a part of it in this season and a part of it in the next season and so on. We are starting with one of the Gospels and with God's help we are going to finish at least this one during this season especially if we don't do this every meeting because then there will be no possibility to have more questions but of course questions you have you can ask me anytime questions in the end of these lectures but uh, maybe other people would like to approach subjects such as the Tibetan Book of the Dead okay we just have that but I'm just saying it like this or urine therapy many people say oh no that one again <laughs> yes some people didn't hear about that or talks about tantric yoga or things about uh, the life of Ramakrishna or some other quotations or other 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 issues talking about parapsychology or whatever that is why I don't think it is wise that we keep it every time every time from time to time I'll interrupt and we'll do other things especially because some people might not be fully attuned to this and this will simply make the subject longer and longer and longer. Uh, I don't know really how much it will last because I have never gone through the whole text. I will try to go through the whole text. In, in the Gospels themselves there are paragraphs which are completely simplistic and they don't say anything interpretable or commentable and there are paragraphs especially where Jesus does launches some of his parables and teachings which have to be explained thoroughly because there he speaks metaphorically he means some hidden laws of nature he implies special issues of the relationship between man and the universe and those need to be clarified because Jesus spoke in parables even the Bible claims very clearly that Jesus didn't always speak in parables that actually to some of his close disciples he explained some of these things and he spoke in parables for the outsiders because he knew that people who were not close to him and he could not spend time with him and meditate and whatever transform spiritually they couldn't actually understand fully these things but else yes many of these truths can be explained this being said, I'm going to start tonight a little bit because it's already late and we started late already. We'll try that next time. Let's start earlier. I'm going to start with the Gospel according to Matthew, which is the first of the four Gospels in the Bible. 
I'm reading from a millennium edition of the Bible which is supposed to have a very updated modern language. Uh, sometimes the Bible loses its flavor if you read it in modern language. Many people prefer to read it in the King James edition like in the 17th century language uh, because then it sounds like more, uh, it has the color, it has the atmosphere, it has the mystery. But at the same time many words are used there in funny ways and the language becomes uh, hard sometimes. I'll read it in uh, the modern version, which is, I've confronted it, and it's a pretty exact, pretty accurate translation, done with a lot of scholarly care, as the authors uh, want uh, in the foreword to it. And uh, at the same time, if necessary, I have the older version and some transcripts of it, I've even got the Romanian version here, if I, want, if I don't understand something and I want to see it in another translation, in another alternative, and slowly, slowly we are going to elucidate the meanings of it. Again, some paragraphs I'm just going to read slowly, and I will not stop for a second, unless at some point when we make a break after each major paragraph, if you will have questions, case in which write them down, and then when we finish the paragraph, then you can come back and ask me what about that. But wherever I feel that is just sharp information like this, I will not stop, I will not bother to comment the obvious. I will, on the contrary, stop on some paragraphs which seem to be of high importance and which are hiding yogic things, which are hiding metaphysical things that need to be explained. This being said, the Gospel of Matthew seems to be historically the oldest of all of them in the Bible, and it is the only one which is actually written by one of the physical disciples of Jesus. There is a second one which is supposed to be written by one of them and that is John's Gospel. But John's Gospel historically has been discovered that it was written much later. So maybe there existed an original John's Gospel and then some people rewrote it 150 years later. That is why that one is not written directly. Uh, the other two, Mark and Luke, none of them actually were disciples of Jesus in his own time and therefore they didn't meet Jesus personally. The only one of them who actually met Jesus personally and is an actual witness to those things is Matthew and the Gospel of Matthew that's why it's always placed first because it is historically the first one appeared and it is the one written by a person who seems to have a first-hand experience of the things. And it starts with the genealogy of Jesus, sometimes they call him Jeshua, Yeshua, in this text, simply because it seems that the Aramaic pronunciation would have been close to that to Yeshua. Uh, either I'm reading Yeshua or Jesus, according as the speed of the text is, it's, just, it's mentioning, of course, the same person. And the Gospel of Matthew starts with a very theological thing, a long, long paragraph here, which is called a record of the genealogy of Yeshua, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it, I'm going to read it really quickly because you really don't get anything uh, yogic from this. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadah, Aminadak, the father of Naxon, Naxon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, 
Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asa. Asa the father of Joshaphat. Joshaphat the father of Jehoram. Jehoram the father of Uziah. Uziah the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Joshua, and Joshua the father of Jephoniah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And the last, they are made of three paragraphs, we have finished two already. After the exile to Babylon, Colon, Jephoniah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Machan, Machan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Basic and the next paragraph shortly, to conclude this, it says, Thus there were fourteen generations in all from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile in Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. Basically, this tries to make sense of the Old Testament Jewish history and it actually aims to a very important point for the theologians of Christianity who simply want to demonstrate very clearly that the family of Jesus was actually the family of King David and the family of Abraham. And because the prophets made a prediction that the Messiah will come from this family, and therefore they simply want to substantiate to show look indeed if you follow the genealogical data actually we are coming to Jesus the Christ to the Messiah and therefore they made all this and they show a very strange symmetricity that among three different points of history from Abraham to David from King David to the captivity in Babylon and from Babylon to the time of Jesus in the family of Jesus there have been 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, all in all 42 generations. That is either a thing which is trumped up, which is possible and it will not make a big difference if it's trumped up, or if not, which we can incline to think that it is not trumped up because there wouldn't be a great reason for that after all then uh, it simply comes to the conclusion that there are some very strange synchronicities and some very strange symmetricities and rules of history because it looks very clearly that things are not completely a coincidence. Some things have gone according to some numerological uh, time, epochs, and we don't know how, but we have 14 and 14 and 14, all in all 42 generations which as a coincidence it is exactly the time of the activity of Jesus. Jesus acted for 42 months since the age of 30 when he came forth first until the age of 33 years and a half when he was crucified and basically that makes 42 months all in all again the same number coming up again and again as a significant number three years and a half and so on and as somebody has noticed, maybe that's the three and a half from yoga as a symbol of the number pi and transcendence. That's also possible. What I'm saying here is that this is simply meant to show a synchronicity, a very interesting synchronicity. And to substantiate that this man called Jesus, indeed, as the prophet Jesaiah and others 
Jeremiah and others have said actually that this man was from the family of David and Abraham. He was coming, he was belonging to that lineage of Jewish families. The next paragraph is called the birth of Jesus the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Yeshua, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, apparently meaning in the language of that time, the Savior. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, and that's a quotation from the prophet Isaiah, which can be found in the Old Testament, which says, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Yeshua or Jesus. This paragraph uh, insists on some things which are perhaps not that important, but uh, one of the most scandalous of them for the rationalist mind of modern people is this story of immaculate conception. Basically, um, the story is that the mother of Jesus Mary, while still being a virgin, uh, okay, the text doesn't mention explicitly that, but it implies it by the quotation from Isaiah, that while being still technically speaking a virgin, she was pregnant and it was supposed to be from the Holy Spirit. This requires a lot of explanations, but I will try to keep it short at this level because it's not really the teachings of Jesus that are involved here. First of all, the concept of immaculate conception. You'd be surprised to know that it exists in India. Several times there have been gurus, such as the Guru Padma Sambhava, the Guru Rinpoche of Tibet, who was supposed to be born in the same way. It's true that that is supposed to have happened in the 6th century, and maybe it was simply a plagiarism, maybe simply they copied the idea from the Christians, because they saw that the idea was very successful, and they said, we also got one who was born out of a immaculate conception. In the same way, there are some references to Buddha's birth, but not completely. In the, Buddha, in the case of Buddha, there are signs that his mother had very special dreams while she was pregnant with Buddha, and it was interpreted from those dreams that in her womb there was an exceptional spirit that was going to do a lot for mankind. And also there are other examples. Actually, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, who mysteriously seems to be an avatar himself, they claim in India today they, that his mother got pregnant with the little Ramakrishna while her fa his father was away on a pilgrimage to a temple in another part of India. Either that is true or again it is a plagiarism which is just a made up, a trumped up thing. It is not very important. The claim is just to sustain that sometimes things can come uh, as pregnancy without the physical contact. 
the tantrics of India claimed that always and they claim that that function happens at the level of Ajna Chakra mysteriously which would correspond to some things of the Holy Spirit as well as we'll talk in a second and they, I have even seen in a tantric text of the Kaulas a whole text about the Immaculate Conception it was a woman who translates she's called Elizabeth Sharp P Sharp like but not sharp with an E in the end so Sharpie or something sharp maybe you read it this Elizabeth Sharp she wrote this book in the 19th 20th century it's a very rare and strange book any one of you has the opportunity to get to read uh, Elizabeth Sharpie's book about uh, tantric immaculate conception her books are very rare and you can read that in a tantric text some people can say, well, the tantric texts are still very new and that can also be an imitation. Yes, but you know what is funny? That even in the Mahanirvana Tantra and even in the older texts of Vedism, it is mentioned that Immaculate Conception was taking place as a regular fact in Kali Yuga, where people were not born out of sexual contact, but out of desire. The statement being that actually people could... Um, The statement actually being that people would look in each other's eyes in Kali Yuga, and I'm sorry, in Satya Yuga, and the woman will simply get pregnant by the desire expressed by them looking in each other's eyes. They would like make love through their eyes. There was no need of genital contact. An interesting experiment in biology today has shown that it is possible to start the duplication of the egg, of the female egg, in a pregnancy-like process by pricking it with a very sharp needle. That means simply by taking an egg in fertility phase and simply pricking it with a needle, it is possible that the egg mixes up the needle for a sperm cell and it starts duplicating by itself. I am reminding you that the needle, the sharp steel point, they are loaded with the highest concentration of static electricity and they are used in magic, such as magic daggers or swords or points of metal for discharging demonic entities like you prick the air and it's like you destroy all kind of evil accumulations of energy. They are, uh, inter they are used like a kind of lightning rod, exactly as a lightning rod attracts it everything, exactly in, a, in the same way a sharp point of steel, of metal, uh, seems to focus in it a very peculiar energy especially because of this uh, shape. In mathematics, this shape of the point, of a point, of, of a very sharp point, it is called a mathematical singularity, and it has a very, very special expression in an mathematical analysis and other high mathematical theories. Therefore, indeed, from a mathematic, as a mathematical topological model, a, a sharp point is a very, very weird thing mathematically. The equations expressing it are completely uh, something else. And it represents a singularity, which means something tending to the infinite. And it is funny that it is exactly sharp points, like the point of a needle, which generate weird effects in electricity and in other, in magic, in occult sciences. And it's funny that the same experiment done with a micro needle, with a microscopic needle on a egg of a, on a feminine egg, 
it tends to produce fertilization and uh, it doesn't use the genetical code of the sperm because it doesn't have it just duplicates its own genetical code and it becomes by itself that's a very weird statement but it actually says that under special conditions it is theoretically possible to conceive that the egg of a woman gets an electric jolt of a type and it starts simply multiplying as if the woman has been fertilized uh, physically by a sperm cell while there was no sperm cell there was just like a lightning there was just like an electric spark there was like some energy which is a very masculine energy this sharp energy is yang of course is the ultimate yang and therefore uh, this energy can create that that is why it is possible to conceive of that as a fact many people actually shrug their shoulders and they say we don't even care if they try to say that Jesus was born of immaculate conception good for them for me I love Jesus and I respect what he said either he was born from immaculate conception or not because he was anyhow an extraordinary fellow and he was anyhow a divine human being that is why for many people it doesn't even matter and they say all this story either she had sex before or not or this was from there or it was the electricity of the Holy Spirit or it was whatever who cares ultimately the final product was an excellent man called Jesus and this man has changed history and has brought us a great hope and a great light and therefore it doesn't really matter uh, I'm telling you this because today the revisionists of history for example when taking the old Jewish uh, sources uh, naturally the Jewish priests were very very angry at what Jesus did and after the time of Jesus not only did they crucify him physically or they contributed to it because the Romans did it after all but uh, not only that but they tried to assassinate his character trying to invent all kind of weird things to show that this Jesus was not so extraordinary after all forget about him he was and among others of course the first thing they they stumbled over was the immaculate conception and they uh, you find in some Jewish texts I forgot exactly which of them some of these Talmudic texts and others you find the uh, things which say that actually Mary was just a whore she had sex with Roman soldiers uh, that's why she got pregnant she was a fornicating woman and actually Jesus is nothing else but a bastard uh, he, she is an adulterous child made outside of the marriage and uh, luckily Joseph was a very understanding man and he took her anyhow and so on and the fact that she didn't have sex or she had sex afterwards or before or blah 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 ultimately I can tell you that I personally uh, as a person don't give a dime on the fact that if this was the truth or not because it doesn't change with anything uh, the truth of what Jesus has said in whichever way the divine consciousness chose to come on this planet it is completely independent that means I cannot say that God can be incarnated on this planet only like this or only like that for example Krishna also had a mother and a father and he still was a divine spirit therefore uh, these things are a bit speculative the story that uh, Jesus was with they are meant to underline a kind of archetypal purity in a certain way the metaphysicians would say if Jesus indeed was born without physical contact 
this would make him a citizen of Satya Yuga. He is kind of a citizen of Satya Yuga, left alone in Kali Yuga. It's kind of he's one of a kind, you know, his place was not in Satya in Kali Yuga, but in Satya Yuga because look, there is a man born without sexual contact, an angel like of a man, completely detached from everything terrestrial, and as thus he was special. It may have significance theologically, but as a yogi you should not uh, focus so much on this. According to some sources in yoga, they will equate some of the energies of the Holy Spirit with the fifth body, with Ananda Mayakosha, thus relating it perhaps with Vishuddha Chakra. Others would say, well, Ananda Mayakosha is related to Sahasrara, as we learn in yoga. And according to some of the things in the tree of life in the Kabbalah, that would correspond also to Ajna Chakra. The fact that in uh, Hindu Tantrism they spoke about an immaculate conception to Ajna Chakra seems to point yogically to this fact, to this uh, letter uh, statement. And... Um, Basically, there is no more to say, exception made to say that the Holy Spirit, uh, as it is decided, as a power of God, can be an operative power. It is actually funny, 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 that in Gnosticism and in the metaphysics of Christianity, the Holy, the Holy Spirit is considered to be Sophia, or nothing else but the feminine aspect of God, the Shakti aspect of God. So it is funny to think of it, that to say that God, uh, I mean Jesus, was conceived by his mother being fertilized by the Holy Spirit, which is Shakti also. It's kind of a Shakti has fertilized Shakti or whatever. It's kind of, it sounds a little bit improbable. It's a kind of um, a metaphysical thing again uh, that would go in trying to search what the Holy Spirit is but we'll leave this problem for later because it's a very steep problem for the beginning and in the first lecture I would lose you if I try to explain yogically the story with the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, remember that this Holy Spirit story, it says that one aspect of God, which is the active aspect of God, which would be the Shakti aspect of God, therefore, was actively involved in the story with Jesus. Well, fact is that I don't know Suetonius or some other Roman historian who describes exactly the times of Jesus and some people say that is also uh, plastic, plastered, it's not, it's also made, it's trumped up but still it appears as the witness of a Roman historian and Roman historians were pretty accurate and pretty scientific at their time he claims to give a description of Judea, Samaria, Galilea and other places there in the time of Jesus and among others he incidentally describes also the person of Jesus appearing in that time and he describes the person of Jesus as being uh, with chestnut hair and with blue eyes which uh, none of them is really a Semitic genetical stock that means it definitely makes Jesus a very outstanding person in a society which is totally based on Semitical genes like you can see them today in the Semitic areas of this planet in the Middle East a man like Jesus with blue eyes and red chestnut like hair is an freak, is an anomaly is something completely, completely different from the others 
that is why even Adolf Hitler clinged very much to this Jewish historical thing and he said, just to justify himself of course, he said that actually Jesus was nothing else but the baby of Mary with a Germanic Roman soldier from the Roman legions, that's why he had blue eyes and this way Jesus was a bit of an Aryan actually, he was not a Jew, he was halfway an Aryan because he had blue hair, blue eyes and whatever, being uh, the soldier of uh, the son of a good old uh, Roman Germanic uh, soldier. In this way you'll find all kind of weird theories but fact is that the, uh, in this case we find also a lot of angel-like interventions that somehow uh, Joseph has interventions in his dreams that means he has very symbolic dreams or an angel or something he thinks to be an angel comes and tells him don't do this do this, do that, don't do that and he is pretty full of faith to have faith to obey to listen to what the angel seems to tell him then the second paragraph which we will be able for sure to get over tonight still is the one concerning the visit of the Ma Magi <coughs> after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked where is the one who has been born king of the Jews we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him when King, Her when king Herod heard this he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law he asked them where the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem in Judea they replied for this is what the prophet has written and they give us a witness from the prophet Micah who said but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel and by this prophecy they seem to imply that somebody very big will be born in Bethlehem then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. After having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This part of the story is pretty wild in a few things. Let's explain what is known about them in a metaphysical way. First of all, it's obviously that it, there was something about a star and astrology. Either the meaning is metaphorical, we saw his star, means we saw his stars, we saw it, and we know right now somebody should be born. And according to today, according to today, it's possible, of course, to calculate horoscopes very clearly. And uh, it is possible even to find geomantic things, like the Earth horoscope, where exactly on the Earth, according to the sky coordinates, should the maximum influence of a certain star or cluster of stars fall. Therefore, you know, today if you go to some astrologers, they can tell according to your chart 
which country in the world is beneficial to you, which country in the world is not good for you, where you can do this and this, like synchronizing the geography of the earth with the geography of the space. In that way, yes, you can calculate both a place and a moment, and it is assumed that these people calculated it. These Magi, they were obviously from the east, that means countries east of today's Palestine. Uh, that uh, the name Magi actually points to Zoroastrianism, to people coming from today's Persia or Iran, but uh, the biggest uh, metaphysicians actually have the opinion that these people were nothing else but emissaries of Shambhala. They are not coming only from Persia or Iran, they are coming from beyond that, from Central Asia, from the communication ports with Shambhala, and actually that these three great initiates, there are three in number, the Bible doesn't specify how many they were, these three initiates actually uh, they were a kind of recognition from Shambhala, at the same time they seem to have stirred the waters unnecessarily because they simply blew the secret open that the stars show that the great king of mankind will be born and so on and you can see immediately that a manipuristic fellow like King Herod who was just thinking about his money, power, influence and everything the first thing which came to him obviously was whoops a king is going to be born then I will not be a king or my son will no longer be a king I am screwed and therefore all his interest was to find where this child is and to destroy it actually here you already start seeing the game of the demonic entities that the satanic diabolic entities as soon as Jesus was born they just had one purpose to destroy this man to take him out because he was a pain in the eye, he was a pain in the neck, that he was a thorn in the eye, that this man was the enemy, was, and was going to be the enemy of everything which is dark, demonic, satanic, whatever. And therefore, this starts directly with the birth of Jesus, that means the demons have no scruples, and they will not hesitate to take him out as a baby. The same thing has happened other times in history with other great children, when because they were not avatars and because the angels were not there to protect them all the way some things have happened there is a very very funny thing in the case of the great French uh, spiritualist and philosopher Blaise Pascal you are very welcome to read about the mysterious life of Blaise Pascal and to see what kind of person he was and what happened with him and actually at the time of Blaise Pascal and before there was another child, I forgot his name, who was obviously born with some signs of something extraordinary and some secret societies of the time and some people associated with everything in power in that time they did everything and that child by the age of seven was killed he was simply, first he was immobilized, he was crippled, then he was it is a story which is defying any imagination if you'll read the life of Blaise Pascal, you'll probably find references to the other. If not, I'll have to think where I read that story. It was a book of history and the life of that child was given as an example that other great spirits might have been born and actually they were got before they grew up and they actually came to do a change. In this way, you can simply say that there is a battle and the battle is open and the demonic spirits were on the neck of Jesus ever since he was born because he had to be taken out again this man was a direct threat 
to the everything that is demonic, satanic, diabolic and dark on this planet. And therefore, uh, you can see in the King Herod the exact attitude of a Manipura, demonic, an ugly Manipura type of person who was very oily and he told to the Magi, oh, I just also want to go to bow down to this child, please uh, find him for me. It's kind of using smart people to do your dirty job and funny enough the smart people were about to fall for it but funny enough they have been warned in a dream says the bible again plenty of dreams many of these people must have been quite seers or there was something else maybe some of them were plainly clairvoyant they have this foresight and they just saw it maybe being from Shambhala they were not fooled at all by the transparent intentions of King Herod and they knew to start with that they shouldn't trust this guy fact is that they found the baby Jesus, they did the worship, the objects are symbolic, gold, incense and myrrh, they are something concerning the royal power and the sacramental power, is this gold for the kings, incense for the priests and myrrh as a palm of divinity and therefore you have the whole story here that uh, this perfect Jesus at the same time the demons got to hear about it and they were after him from the beginning and uh, again here you see that if could happen to bless Pascal or to that other French child that uh, they were persecuted bitterly and they didn't even make it up to the age of maturity it didn't happen to Jesus the same way not because the demons didn't try because actually the demons tried their best and they can kind of went over the top to get to do that but um, I mean they overdid it as you'll see in a second but actually um, there was a plain divine intervention it's kind of angels 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 preparing this boy this child for what was to come that is perhaps also a landmark of divinity and a landmark of an avatar that an avatar is not every Tom Dick and Harry who has to play the game of life he's coming as being God and he is here with a mission and even the demonic forces are not able to stop such a thing because they, their power is limited when it comes to what is divine their power is basically zero when it comes to what is divine and that is why I'm telling you all this story is very explicative in the meaning that it shows already the world starting and it is something which you should always live with Jesus gives us very clearly this meaning that as long as you are spiritual the demonic forces are going to chase you the equation is very simple it is kind of impossible to be spiritual and active and non-compromising in spirituality and at the same time to be friends with the demons or to be tolerated by the diabolic or satanic entities the satanic entities will never ever tolerate a spiritual being because if they are in a situation of open rebellion, of open war and as such uh, for them there is only one solution attack, attack, attack shamelessly, permanently, without scruples, there is no break there is no, anybody who believes that the demons or the devils they get tired and they will take a break, they live in a Fata Morgana, they live in Wonderland because in reality it doesn't happen even Jesus, who is supposed to have been a divine spirit, did not escape persecution from the beginning of his life 
and he escaped only because God wanted him to escape because something else was in store for him something else was in plan and we are still in the middle of the second paragraph which I will continue in a second And it continues. When they had gone, the Magi, that is, they came, they saw, they confirmed that this baby was born and the world was going to spin that way. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream again. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. The angels can be pretty precise, apparently, sometimes, because this one is like a secret service information message. And it was very useful indeed because that's what he did. So the Bible continues and says, So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. That is, uh, if I remember, by the time Jesus was approximately seven years old. Seven years historically after the moment of birth. And so was fulfilled, says the Bible, what the Lord has said through the prophet, the prophet Hosea, again another of the old prophets, who says, out of Egypt I called my son. So like Jesus was a little bit in Egypt as a child. This makes some people believe that he got some Egyptian influences and makes many people also believe that perhaps in the years of his life which are not accounted for in the Bible, perhaps Jesus among others, he went back to Egypt because they had connections, relatives, family left there, whatever, and perhaps some of the things which he learned are from the Egyptians. I would say that what Jesus does to the world doesn't sound very much Egyptian, doesn't have any resonances with Egyptian spirituality or mysticism. It is more possible by the resonance on Anahata and the others to believe that actually Jesus was in the East and was involved with things uh, like Hinduism or things of Buddha or whatever. The hypothesis with Egypt doesn't, doesn't seem to stand uh, very well from a yogic standpoint. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled another quotation to justify that even that had been predicted all these quotations from the prophets is to show that things happened by the book a voice is heard in Rama weeping and great mourning Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more basically the story says I don't know if it's here in the Gospel of Matthew or somewhere else that 20,000 children have been killed all in all uh, that seems to be an exaggerated number and it is known that people in the old days they rounded up the numbers 
like multiplying them by 10 or 100 just to make the digits more important, to make the numbers more significant. It's a kind of a, not a, it's, it's a white lie, it's a kind of a poetic lie, uh, beautying a little bit the story, beautifying the story a little bit, uh, because if we admit that there were boys in uh, Bethlehem between the age of zero and two in the number of 20,000, if you make the curve of the population, like how many should there be in all, then it comes out that there should have been millions of people living only in Bethlehem at that time to be able to have 20,000 children in that group of age. And therefore many people claim that that is not quite correct, that maybe there were 2,000, maybe there were 200. Uh, the horror of it remains. It shows what a Manipuristic king is ready to do to defend his ass, uh, to defend his miserable uh, misery. Uh, that this guy simply did not hesitate to butcher small boys just to make sure that he will catch in the sweep also the one that he was really interested into and he was ready to butcher hundreds of innocents just that he should catch the one that uh, he was concerned with therefore that's a terrible thing which shows also how far the demons would go that's why I say when you are spiritual the demons will make excess of means to get to you because nothing is more important for the devils than to get hold of a spiritual person and destroy it. The others, the Tom, Dicks and Harrys, they don't matter. They are just sheep and therefore the devils can leave them alone or do whatever. But one who is spiritual can change the history of a planet. And that one, we can focus all upon him or her because that one is really the danger. That is why remember that in spirituality, Sometimes the opposition of the dark forces, of the diabolic forces, is out of proportion. It is completely disproportionate. It's like many people who are amateurs, they don't see it coming and they don't expect it and they don't know what hit them and they cannot understand why all the time things seem to turn against and against and against and there is opposition and the, exactly when you want to do something, the person who had to give you an advantage gets pissed off and demonic and de does ugly things and it's kind of why does this happen to me you know it's kind of why 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 this kind of persecution thing remember that it is a very well fundamented thing in the bible you can see it very clearly and it shows how far it can go another very awkward consideration which uh, can be seen in meditation when you think about this is to realize that among those children if indeed the birth of Jesus was associated with a special astrological moment a special place maybe even a special astronomical phenomenon such as a supernova erupting for a few weeks or whatever this automatically must have created a very special astrological moment which seems to have had its focus in the area of the city of Bethlehem of today and the neighboring area but guess what when Jesus was born there and then in that night or in the night before or in the night after or in that period other babies must have been born also because there are always many children born in a certain geographic area, especially if it's populated. That means Jesus must have had some astrological brothers and sisters 
that means some very exceptional human beings born exactly under the same sky or something slightly different. Well, it is very strange then that the demons annihilated all those and there remained only one copy of that astrological circumstance, only one person born in that astrological thing who actually made it to maturity because the others there might have been others remember among those 20,000 or 2,000 or 200 there might have been four or five other boys they killed only the boys because that was the, they considered that women can't do it anyhow they killed uh, they must have killed two, three, four other boys who were born more or less under the same identical astrological sky or nearly to that where Jesus was born and that is very significant because in a certain way you can think that astrology is a synchronicity of what the soul is and even when I mean you can say well a man like Jesus could have been born under any astrological circumstance because he was so spiritual that for him the astrological influence was zero and as soon as he grew up he got out of his astrological determination so for him these were not important yes and at the same but at the same time the universe is a mirror we are mirrored in the universe everything is reflected in the environment so it's like the universe made a big something when such an exceptional thing has happened in the history of this planet that means things were very exceptional and therefore such a phenomenon existed and any other child born under the same phenomenon in the same place might have had a very interesting structure because of being subjected to such an influence and funny enough sad enough as well all those children were called away they were simply exterminated so only one made it from that whole lot which is significant if you look at it from this standpoint and the final paragraph from the chapter 2 here the return to Nazareth after Herod died an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream they have a good habit to Joseph in Egypt and said get up take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead <coughs> so he got up took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod he was afraid to go there having been warned in a dream he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets again a quotation from the prophets that he will be called a Nazarene like one of Nazareth so in that way uh, that was the early part of the life of Jesus it is already over 12 o'clock so I will stop here I made an introduction I didn't even reach to the great teachings of Jesus because this week we just started and uh, I didn't get in the thick of it I will continue this lecture also on Thursday and then starting with next week we'll do just one per week with this subject unless all of you 95% of you almost unanimously stand up and cry that you want Elizabeth at the time when she was supposed to be barren and everybody considered or knew that this woman cannot have children and therefore John was born to this uh, Elizabeth uh, the cousin of Mary 
as a miracle also, not that he was mentioned to be born as immaculate conception, uh, there isn't such a thing, that means Elizabeth was having uh, a sexual life together with her husband, but still she was at an age when uh, it was difficult to presume that she would get child and that she was supposed to be barren. That is why the birth of John the Baptist was in itself a little bit of a miracle. And uh, John the Baptist and Jesus were born like six months away from each other. If you want to take astrologically, we celebrate today the birthday of Jesus on the 25th of December, which would make Jesus a Capricorn, and the birthday of John the Baptist is somewhere in June, around the 20th, 20-something of June, which would make him a Cancerian, astrologically. Therefore, there was a six-month difference between these two, and moreover, they were actually cousins. John the Baptist and Jesus were therefore cousins, as you call today, second-degree cousins, because their mothers were first-degree cousins. And this John the Baptist uh, seemed, in light of what I told you yesterday, this is both significant and non-significant, because an avatara, a divine spirit, such as that of Jesus, doesn't really need a guru. But on the other hand, of course, when somebody picks up knowledge, when somebody picks up spirituality, of course they pick up spirituality from other persons, from books, from whatever. So fact is that uh, indeed there may have been a connection and the many people of today, they try to speculate on the fact if Jesus was a member of the cult of the Essenians, uh, those people who are supposed to have lodged and uh, written things such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there is a lot of speculation, and we must admit that much of it is non-scientific. Uh,